Willkommen, bienvenue, and welcome to The Musical Man, the podcast that shines new light on the Tony Award for Best Musical. Each week, we examine the nominees and winners of that esteemed decoration, and this week, we'll be discussing Kiss Me, Kate. Another show in Philly, Boston, or Baltimore. A chance for stage folks to say hello. Another opening of another show. I can sing. I can sing too. I'm a very good, I'm a B minus singer. <laughs> That's the grade I give myself. Hey, you know how I'd like to actually begin? I just want to ask again how are you doing? I hope that you are doing well. I hope this episode finds you well. It's going to be dropping in the middle of the week, I think. I think we're going to be having a regular Wednesday schedule for this podcast. So it's hump day. I hope that... (laughs) I hope you don't hate that term because I just used it. And if you do, it probably made Wednesday all the more unbearable. Look, I want this show... I'm just going to reiterate. I want this show to be a respite from all of that. I want you to ignore all of the haters out there. (laughs) Another term that... I'm sure has made some spines just crinkle into the shape of a cane. You know the disagreement that you had at some point between the Overture episode and this episode? I'm thinking you had a disagreement with someone, right? I want you to know that this is a place where you can feel confident in the idea that you were right. And that person was wrong. Uh, they can go fuck themselves. Uh, welcome to the musical, man. I, I hope that you're tucked in. I hope you're comfy and cozy. I have a little hot drink here. I hope you do, too. I would recommend what I am drinking, which is uh, 5678 coffee. Uh, let's see here. Ah, delicious. I hope you like that sound of me banging the cup against the desk. I have some news for you. I, I don't know if anybody was following the news this week, but The Notebook is being adapted into a Broadway musical. Uh, I have not read the original book. I have not seen the film starring Ryan Gosling and other people, I assume. Uh, but it is apparently being adapted by Bika Brunstetter, who is a supervising producer on This Is Us, as well as a playwright. And the so that she's going to be working on the book and singer Ingrid Michaelson. Uh, she's a pop star. Uh, her platinum singles include "Girls Chase Boys" and "The Way I Am." Uh, she's going to be working on the music and lyrics. And my attitude towards this is sure. Why not? It honestly probably stands a much better chance of succeeding on Broadway than The Bridges of Madison County, which is a show that I immediately leapt to in terms of a. Uh, apples to apples comparison, both you know high melodrama steeped in thick unironic romance. The thing about this is uh, the Bridges of Madison County. I don't necessarily think uh, appeals to as wide a an audience as the Notebook. I think that that's a very good. Uh, instance of brand recognition. So I applaud those producers for coming up with that idea. I think it's a license to print money. And because I have nothing to compare it to in terms of its source material, I'm not (laughs) worried. I'm not concerned about it being quote-unquote ruined. Uh, As I mentioned, uh, we have our first show. It's, It's We're starting right at the beginning with Kiss Me, Kate, and let's get some facts. Let's get some history about it. Let's, you know what? Let's get another clip. Let's get another clip right here. Why, there's a wench. Come on and kiss me, Kate. So kiss me, Kate. And twice and thrice. There we start living in paradise. Oh, kiss me, Kate. This show, Kiss Me, Kate, was inspired by the often chaotic relationship between a married couple, a real married couple, Alfred Lunt and Lynn Fontaine. So they were a married couple who appeared together in a 1935 production of The Taming of the Shrew. Now, Arnold St. Subert, who would go on to become a Broadway producer, he witnessed all of their on and off stage drama, and he was inspired. He thought that their <laughs> their misery, their heterosexual anarchy would be a good basis for a musical. So uh, Arnold St. Hubert reached out to Samuel and Bella Spiewak. Uh, they wrote the book, and Bella Spiewak in turn enlisted Cole Porter, the, uh, of course, 
radically famous and beloved composer, he was hired to write the music and the lyrics. Now, the Spewaks, it should be noted, were apparently dealing with their own marital issues at the time of the show's creation. So, in general, there's just a lot of heterosexual angst seeping into this piece, lifting it up. That You just got to understand that that's what we're going into. It's a very... <laughs> It's a very staunchly straight. It's not quite Virginia Woolf. We're not getting that dark, but we're there. There, it's a Venn diagram, and there's some definite overlap there. Uh, I also apologize to the Spewax if I'm mispronouncing their name. I apologize to uh, Arnold Saint Hubert if I'm uh, saying his name incorrectly. The problem is that I can't really find any online resources on how to correctly pronounce their names. Uh, I am the musical man, but I feel like I am learning right alongside you, and uh, if I'm making mistakes, I own up to them. I do not balk in the face of criticism or corrections. I'm going to take another sip of this 5678 coffee. Not going to slam the mug on the desk this time around. Patty, I think we found it. I think we found the optimal temperature for this delicious coffee. Thank you very much. Patty, our producer in the booth, uh, meant to introduce her just a moment ago, but I'm doing it now. Patty, thank you so much for helping this show run as smoothly as it does. You're the oil. The grease. Yes, the grease on the wheels. She's nodding. Thank you very much, Patty. Thank you for uh, helping me get... Thank you for dragging my corpse across the finish line. Uh, The original Broadway production of Kiss Me, Kate opened on December 30th, 1948 at the New Century Theater. It was directed by John C. Wilson, and the choreography uh, was overseen by Hanya Holm. The original cast included Alfred Drake, Patricia Morrison, Lisa Kirk... Harold Lang, Charles Wood, and Harry Clark. After 19 months, the production was transferred to the Schubert Theater, Schubert, and it ultimately ran for a total of 1,077 performances. As a point of reference, Kiss Me Kate currently rests at number 105 on the list of longest-running Broadway musicals. It is currently sitting snugly between their Playing Our Song, which ranks at number 104 with a total of 1,082 performances, and Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark, which ranks at 106 and ran for 1,066 performances. Not only did Kiss Me Kate receive the first Tony Award for Best Musical in Tony's history, it also won awards for Best Author of a Musical, Best Original Score, Best Costume Design, and Best Producer of a Musical. It received a lot of love. It should be noted that Kiss Me Kate was uh, revived in 1952. Now, Wikipedia says it was a short-lived revival. The, The total number of performances, for some reason, is not cataloged on Wikipedia, which is surprising because they go on to note that in 1999, there was another major Broadway revival, and we we do know that that ran for 881 performances. So I'm not really quite sure what happened there with the research. Uh, I I suppose I could do more research outside of Wikipedia, but uh, uh, gotta go! Grabs hat, jacket, umbrella, bag, suitcase, second umbrella, Ah, gotta go! So now you know, you're learning a lot, you're becoming a very smart person, but come on already, no more school, no more books, no more teacher's dirty looks. Let's dive into the plot. This is a story about two couples. Let's talk about the first couple. One half of this first couple is Fred. Now, Fred is an asshole. He is a big fucking jerk. He's an egotist. Uh, He is a director and an actor, and he is currently directing and starring in a musical adaptation of The Taming of the Shrew. So this character, Fred, has written a show that is a huge vehicle for himself, and not not only this, he has also chosen inexplicably to cast his ex-wife, Lily, the the second half of this first couple. His ex-wife, Lily, is this movie star, but she is... Her star is fading, which sort of necessitated, I believe, her return to theater. Otherwise, I don't believe she would have agreed to star alongside her ex-husband. A lot of animosity here, but I think what we all understand is that when we witness animosity, when we witness verbal and light physical abuse between two people, what that really means sometimes is that the chemistry is still there. There's a fire there that refuses to be tamed, and it's destructive. Oh, it's destructive. People get hurt in the process, but it's hot. 
you cannot deny that at the end of the day, it's hot to witness a straight man and a straight woman scream at each other, abuse each other in front of an entire group of people uh, as if they don't even exist, as if we're not there. And that's what Fred and Lily really bring to the table. Uh, In this Taming of the Shrew production that Fred has sort of put up all by himself, uh, he is playing the role of Petruchio, and Lily is playing the role of Catherine. So, of course, for those familiar with the Taming of the Shrew, we're seeing a direct parallel here. Uh, Lily, it's sort of inexplicable to me. I like Lily as a character much more than Fred, especially when you consider what Lily has to go through throughout the course of the show. Her temper is mentioned by Fred at a certain point as as a reason as to why they may have divorced in the first place. But Fred himself, there's not a ton of self-reflection on Fred's part. Fred just sort of wants what he wants from moment to moment And that can shift wildly, but he sort of expects everyone to fall in line. And the choices that he makes throughout the rest of this plot are sort of indefensible. I know this is supposed to be a light comedy, but it's it's a little disturbing. When the curtain goes up on Kiss Me Kate, it's also the opening night of The Taming of the Shrew, the musical. (laughs) They don't even give it like a cute name like Shrew or um, Shrew Becomes Her or something like that. It's just The Taming of the Shrew. And Fred and Lily are going over the bows, how the the whole bow system is going to work at the end of the show. And she calls him a bastard. And they're fighting and they have these adjoining dressing rooms and they're they're fighting, they're they're fucking bickering like gnats. At a certain point, uh, we, we don't see this on stage, but... Fred hands a bouquet of flowers to his assistant, Paul, and there's a card that goes with the flowers. And he says, you know, deliver these flowers, Paul. And Paul says, okay, Fred, I will deliver the flowers. But Paul doesn't look at the card. If he had looked at the card, he would know that the flowers are intended for one half of our other couple. I mentioned there are two couples. Now, this this woman is named Lois Lane. That's right. Her full name is Lois Lane. It should be noted that, uh, of course, Kiss Me Kate premiered in 48. The the iconic comic book character Lois Lane premiered in 1938. I don't know if one of the Spewaks thought they were getting cute with the book or if they just were completely unaware of this character because I, I guess, you know, in 10 years, Superman hadn't really been elevated to iconic status. But the point is that her name is Lois Lane, and I find it to be very funny. The flowers are intended for Lois Lane, who Fred has been flirting with ravenously throughout the production process. She's a nightclub singer who believes that her being in Taming of the Shrew, her role of Bianca in The Taming of the Shrew, will elevate her to star status. She'll be able to leave the world of the nightclub. The, the problem is the flowers don't go to Lois. They go to Lily, Fred's ex-wife, as I have mentioned. And the crazy thing about the bouquet is that the bouquet is identical to Fred and Lily's wedding bouquet. It's, it's the exact bouquet that Lily held while walking down the aisle towards her first doomed marriage. And instead of being horrified by this, Lily is delighted. When she gets these flowers, by mistake, she doesn't know by mistake, she feels that these are for her. She doesn't read the card at first. She doesn't. She is just so... She's sent into this rapturous state because despite the fact that Fred treats her like shit and she treats him like shit... He still loves her, presumably, and she realizes that, oh, I still love him. All of this is happening. Opening night, by the way, of The Taming of the Shrew is also the anniversary of their divorce. She tells Fred, oh, you didn't remember. You didn't remember that this is the day that we got divorced. It's been a year since that happened. And when she gets the bouquet, she thinks, he did remember. He did remember that this is the first anniversary of our divorce. Lily, this is not a good gift if that's the reality that you're accepting. It's not. It's like a disturbing fuck you middle finger. Like to the idea that Fred sent her her own wedding bouquet on the anniversary of their divorce. That's not a show of love. We'll get into the song breakdown in a second, you know, how track to track. But the song that she sings in regards to her newfound, newly realized love for Fred is just, it's just insane. And I feel so bad for Lily. Uh, so I, I mentioned Lois Lane. She She's kind of this ditzy, uh, she works for a nightclub, but I love Lois Lane. She, she's presented as ditzy. I should say that. She's supposed to be this, Blonde bombshell with a blank brain. She's got marbles rocking around in her skull. But I love Lois. She is fantastic because she is so sexually activated. She knows exactly who she is. She flirts and has affairs, uh, presumably, with anyone and everyone that she's attracted to. And I love that. She technically does 
have a boyfriend. He's the other half of this second couple. That's Bill. Now, Bill is also in the Taming of the Troop production. He's playing Lucentio. Uh, Bill has a little bit of a problem, though. He didn't show up for that final rehearsal to go over the vowels because he was gambling. He's a classic guys and dolls type gangster. Not a gangster. He's just a, you know what he is? He's a bum. He's a bum gambler. And he was playing craps and losing spectacularly because Bill is a big fucking dick and he's a prick. He at one point had to sign a $10,000 IOU over to someone who is a gangster, like someone who probably could have him killed in an instant. But instead of signing his name, Bill decided to sign Fred's name. Yes, the director who gave him his big shot. I shouldn't mention that Bill also works in the same nightclub that Lois Lane works in. Fred pulled Bill and Lois out of obscurity to be in this show, this huge show. And instead of having any sort of appreciation for that, I get that Fred's an asshole, but, you know, be professional. (laughs) Don't sign Fred's name to a $10,000 IOU. Uh, He lets Lois know about this reluctantly, and she's furious with him. And she kind of has this attitude, I love it, of you need to get your shit in order because if you would just take a moment to assess what is standing in front of you, you would notice that I am a beautiful woman who has chosen to spend time with you. My time is valuable. I have given my time to many men in the past, and I'm currently trying my best to give it to you because I do love you, Bill, but you're really driving me fucking nuts. Uh, So that's kind of their dynamic throughout the show. Bill, not a great character. Fred, not a great character. Lily and Lois, yes, those are the characters you want to play. I don't care if you're a man or a woman. You should be gunning for the roles of Lily and Lois. Uh, There are a couple more characters I want to note just in this plot. There are two gangsters who show up trying to find Fred... They have the $10,000 IOU. They know that the person who signed it signed it with the name Fred. They track down Fred, the director of The Taming of the Shrew, and they basically say to him, hey, remember that crap game that you just walked away from? Well, you know, there's a $10,000 IOU, and we would really like it if you could give us that fucking goddamn money. And Fred, of course, has no idea what Gangster 1 and Gangster 2 are talking about. If you're wondering if they have names proper, apparently they don't. Uh, They're cited in the show as first man and second man, sometimes Gangster 1, Gangster 2, and other instances. There is a film version, which I'll get into, in which the gangsters are known as Lippy and Slug. I like that. (laughs) I like Lippy and Slug. So Fred tells Lippy and Slug, I don't know what you're fucking talking about. I didn't sign my name to no IOU. And the gangsters are a little, you know, peeved off, but they maintain their composure and they say, you know what? This is your opening night. We're going to give you a little bit of time to think about this. Break a leg. Uh, You know, in the meantime, think about your legs actually being broken because that's something that we could very easily turn into a reality for you. Fred comes to understand uh, via Paul, his assistant, that the flowers have been mistakenly delivered to Lily. He's horrified and he realizes that Lily hasn't read the card that's, uh, you know, addressed to Lois and he tries to get it from her. But Lily is just too smitten. She's too over the moon. She's swooning. She puts the card right up against her bosom in her dress, the Taming of the Shrew costume that she's wearing. And she says, I'll read it later, you big hunk of man. Did I mention that uh, Lily is currently engaged? (laughs) She is engaged to a man named Harrison Howell. In the early part of the show, she is seen talking to him on the phone. She has a huge diamond ring from Harrison Howell. Uh, now, throughout the different uh, iterations of Kiss Me Kay that I've seen as preparation for this podcast, Harrison Howell has played many ways. Uh, in one instance, he is super militaristic. He's seen in a full, I believe, army outfit, uniform. Uh, in another version, he's a withering fop dressed in a sort of African safari outfit. And then in the movie, he's a Texas oil man. So Harrison, I guess you could just do whatever you want with Harrison. He's not much of a character, to be honest. I feel feel a little bad for people who have to play Harrison Howell. He's just not that funny. Uh, but the point is... <laughs> The point is that Lily should probably work her own shit out first before she falls head over heels for Fred all over again. Uh, The Taming of the Shrew starts, the production begins, and what's so surprising is that uh, I thought we were going to do more cuts between backstage and on stage, quote-unquote. I thought we were going to see a little bit of The Taming of the Shrew, but then we were going to keep cutting back to all of the antics backstage. Uh, I know that clearly this piece came out long after Kiss Me Kate, but I kept thinking of the play Noises Off, which is a really great example of a demonstration of how theater 
theater can be chaos. How theater, uh, when it goes well, it's a well-oiled machine, and when it falls apart, it's a sometimes delightful disaster to witness. So I thought we were going to see a lot more uh, jumps back and forth. The odd thing is, once The Taming of the Shrew begins, we sit in The Taming of the Shrew for quite some time. And I guess that's to establish normalcy. We're supposed to show that the you know this production is going off well. Uh, everything is going smoothly like a well-oiled machine until Lily, at a certain point, just decides, hey, I'm going to take that card out from my bosom and I'm going to re- What the fuck is this? Lily goes insane. She sees Lois's name on the card and she essentially tries to firebomb this production of The Taming of the Shrew. And she starts <laughs> physically abusing Fred in front of the audience to a point where Fred starts physically abusing her in an attempt to tame her. It's like, it's literally we're doing the most obvious one-to-one parallel to Shakespeare's work. You know, Fred starts to panic because Lily backstage says, well, I'm leaving. I'm not going to finish the performance. Uh, You're a piece of shit who is swooning and mooning over this dummy dumbbell. Uh, She's not. Lois is not a dumbbell. She's a very sexually activated, very on-the-ball woman who knows exactly what she wants, Lily. Don't judge a book by its cover. So Lily is about to leave in a huff. I believe she's even calling Harrison Howell to come get her because Fred puts her on stage in front of this audience, puts her over his knee, and just spanks her fucking ass for like a solid 20 seconds, and she can't sit down. She has bruises all all over her ass. And Fred, in a panic, thinks to himself, well, I can't have this show fail. I'm a struggling actor. That's when the gangsters show up. Uh, I believe, what what did we say their names were? Oh, yes, Lippy and Slug. (laughs) So Lippy and Slug show up, and they're like, hey, the show's going fantastic. Did we mention that you have to give us 10,000 goddamn dollars? And Fred says, well, okay, I admit it. I'm not going to keep saying that I didn't sign that IOU. I am now saying that I did sign the IOU. Uh, The problem is I can't give you $10,000 because the show is going to close and the gangsters say, what do you mean? And Fred says, well, you know, my co-star Lily, she's going to leave in a big huff and the show will have to close and I'll, because I'll never make any money. So I, I don't even know what to do. This is when Fred turns truly dark. He basically turns a blind eye while the gangsters, Lippy and Slug, turn to Lily and say, Hey, we heard that you were going to leave the show. That's not a good idea. Now, when I show you my gun, just know that I'm only moving it from one side of my jacket to the other. Don't take it as an implication that I would shoot you in the fucking face. Okay? Also, you cannot leave. Uh, We will force you on stage. Lippy and I, I am Slug, talking currently, we will don Shakespearean costumes so as to make sure that you stay on stage. If you try to leave the stage, we will hold you in place. And uh, this is abuse. It is absolutely abuse. Entrapment, kidnapping, call it what you will. Uh, But this is where we are now. (laughs) Harrison even shows up and Fred says to Harrison, hey, you know, your fiance is going to say a lot of crazy things. She's going to say that I have her kidnapped here and that, you know, she it's just her being a dramatic, a mellow dramatic actor, I should say. Ignore her. She's just being kind of a kook. You know, how do women be? And Harrison says, I know how do women be. <laughs> Lily turns to her fiance and says, I'm begging you. These men are threatening me with violence. I have already been hit several times. Uh, please take me out of this situation. And Harrison goes, ha, 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 oh, you old kook. You're just nervous. Get out there and do act two. And the gangsters say, yeah, get out there and do act two before we shoot you in the butt. And it just, it gets even crazier beyond that. There's just a lot of antics on stage. And it all wraps up oddly quickly. This is kind of the end of the plot summary here because that IOU, that huge plot device that's hanging over everything, it gets written out so easily because the gangster that Bill interacted with originally dies. Lippy and Slug, they're on the phone. Like, they take a pay, like a payphone call with the gangster who is shot several times. We hear machine gun fire on the other end of the phone. And they just turn to Fred and say, Oh, our boss is no longer alive, which means that the IOU is no longer relevant to us. Goodbye, Fred. Thank you, and good day. (laughs) It's insane. Now, I know that this show is... Old school. It's old fashioned. What you have to understand is it's it's caught between what what the musical theater genre was, the form, 
and what it was going to become. The, the, the concept of the book musical, the book, I know I've said that a few times. If you're, if you're confused, if you don't really know what that means, the book of a musical is just the script. It's just another way of saying the script of a musical. And the, the form known as the book musical uh, was really trying to get away from the more skit and sketch and vaudeville and vignette and review-based material that had been on Broadway for so long. And it was really trying to marry this idea of, well, what if we did try and tell a comedic or dramatic story that's really fleshed out, like we do with plays, like we've been doing for so long, and what if we tried to create a new uh, new genre that brings in songs, but in a very organic way. As I said, it's not going to be this sort of review vaudeville vignette stuff. The songs are going to be a direct extension of the plot and what the characters are experiencing. Uh, the, the two shows that spearheaded that were Showboat and Oklahoma. A Kiss Me Kate is very much inspired by the work and the groundwork that they laid. But the problem is Kiss Me Kate is still old enough to have those instincts. It wants to be old-fashioned. It wants to have those numbers that don't really have any relevancy. And the story, at a certain point, you realize it's just a rickety framework. It's not nearly as strong a book as you would want from something in a more modern-day musical. And that's fine. I mean, it is a light comedy. It is a Cole Porter piece. So I'm not necessarily expecting a super tight plot here. But when the IOU got written out very quickly in the end, I just thought to myself, well, I guess we have only 10 minutes left. (laughs) So it was a little disappointing in that sense. But overall, taking this whole plot into account, it is a really fun, light, show. It's the perfect show to take your grandma to, your aunt to, anyone elderly. (laughs) Anyone over the age of 60 is not going to find a single thing. It's a very horny show. It's a super horny show, but in a way that your grandma and your auntie are going to, they'll either miss it entirely, or if they do get it, they'll find it to be very ribald, and they'll go, ha ha ha, this show is (laughs) K-horny. And I don't, I don't, it's a, it's a show for the whole family, right? Well, maybe not small kids. You know what? Don't take small kids to the theater in general. I wouldn't do that. I dove into a lot of different sources here uh, for my research. I I listened to the 1949 original Broadway cast album, uh, which I learned was inducted into the Library of Congress's National Recording Registry. Uh, Well, excuse me all to hell, fancy ass. I listened to the 1999 Broadway revival cast album. And as I said, I wanted to try, because I'd never seen Kiss Me Kate on stage before. I wanted to get a sense of how the script worked, how it sort of rolled out. So uh, in that regard, I watched the PBS Great Performances filming of a 2001 London revival uh, that is available on YouTube, but I wouldn't necessarily recommend watching it. It's just a little tedious because in classic YouTube fashion, it's chopped up into, I think, like 27 pieces. Each piece is like six minutes long. It's just, it's a little little halting. It's kind of annoying after a while. Uh, I watched, I, I would recommend this much more, the BBC Proms staging, which is on YouTube. I think that's also a little bit more in keeping with the original production. I think the London revival took a lot of uh, chances and made a lot of small and big changes. Something tells me that the BBC Prom staging is more keeping with what you would have seen back in the late 40s. I watched the 2000 Tony segment in which the cast of that revival performed Too Darn Hot, and I watched the 1953 film adaptation. In terms of listening, you can find the albums that I mentioned on Spotify, the original and 99 revival. I would suggest starting with the original album. I think that's a good way to go for most of these shows. Uh, it's a little sleepier. Uh, it kind of comes off as a radio play, and it's it's not as comprehensive, but it is super charming. Uh, and then, then hit up the 99 album, uh, mainly for Brian Stokes Mitchell. Uh, Brian Stokes Mitchell plays Fred on that album, and he's fantastic. The thing about Fred as a character is that he's a real piece of work. He's a real piece of shit. And his songs... Uh, just as they are, are not my favorite. As I said, when we're kind of sitting in the Taming of the Shrew for a while, his songs especially make it seem as if the show is being slowed down. You kind of have the feeling that 
you, you just want to move to someone else, either one of the female characters because they're more interesting and their songs are better, or just any sort of plot element at all. Fred is just kind of a, he's a real bummer. But the thing about Brian Stokes Mitchell is his voice is incredibly rich and God, like his voice is handsome. I would describe his voice as handsome. I've come to wive it wealthily in Padua. If wealthily, then happily in Padua. If my wife has a bag of gold, do I care if the bag be old? I've come to wife it wealthily in Padua. And he makes the songs that I normally wouldn't care to listen to fantastic. So open up the Spotify and check out those two albums. And if you want to, I, I think the movie is fine. I think the movie is very colorful and very bright and upbeat. I think it's very much in keeping with the tone of the original production. What's so funny about it is that it was filmed for 3D screenings, and it's hilarious because rather than really embrace that and have, you know, some really dynamic camera work on display. The camera is actually very stationary. It's The filming is very flat. The cinematography, I should say, is very, very uh, uninteresting. So instead, the only way that they embrace 3D is how the Freddy Krueger and Jason films embrace 3D, and that's just by poking you. There's a lot of stuff that just gets shot at you, at the camera, and after a while, at first I thought it was a little idiotic, but I I was eventually charmed by just how simplistic it was. The DVD even includes extra footage that was cut that's just more people throwing shit at you, including a man dressed as the devil. That's right. Now, let's talk about the songs. Another opening, another show. Uh, the way that another opening, another show begins on the 99 Revival album, it, it, it begins almost as if the sun is rising. Another opening, another show. In Philly, Boston, or Baltimore. A chance for stage folks to say hello. Another opening of another. All of the characters are sort of coming to life before your eyes. In this show, it sort of grows and blooms and blossoms right in front of you. The way that it begins, that track on the Revival album, is is so eerily similar to how another song from another show entirely starts. And that song is, I Feel Like I'm Not Out of Bed Yet. And that's from On the Town. I feel like I'm not out of I just find that fascinating. I don't know if, because, you know, these shows change and evolve over time. The arrangements and the way that the songs are presented change over time. They evolve. And again, I don't know if this is supposed to be like a fun homage to On the Town. That's not a Cole Porter show, so it wouldn't necessarily be another, it wouldn't be a hat tip to a piece from his work, his canon. In my mind, I like to think that someone was making a very kind of dignified, classy bow to On the Town. Uh, I like another open and another show a lot. You know, with the first song in a musical, it's tricky. You can do a lot with that first song, but you ha- you have to do the work of really pulling in the audience from the word go. And of course, that's going to have to rely on the talent that you've chosen on stage, but the material itself just has to be strong on its own. The two halves have to come together. You know, a lot of musicals would have a sort of welcome to the town type of song in which we're introduced to a literal location. In Fiddler on the Roof, we're introduced to the village of Anatevka. Another open another show is in keeping with that type of song, but it's introducing an aesthetic. It's introducing the world of the theater and what it means to be a part of it. And what it means to be a part of it, and I find this to be very funny, is that acting really does kind of suck. Even if you love it, it's a grind. I, one of the lyrics that really stands out to me right at the top is... Another job that you hope at last will make- 
it's that sweatiness, that need. I mean, we see it demonstrated in the character of Lois Lane, who really wants to get herself out of the nightclub scene and be seen as a proper actress. She really does exemplify that idea. I hope that this job will be the job. That's what every actor hopes for on some level. But at the same time, an actor has to have that cynical side, that that idea of this show is going to give me such a pain in the ass and it's going to be so difficult. It's, it's It's a really good number. And what's so unfortunate about the movie is that the movie from the early 50s cuts it entirely, and I find that to be very strange. Uh, Sweeney Todd did that, too. They cut the big opening, and I always think that that's a mistake because, again, it really sets the tone very well. Instead, they just take a bit of instrumental from another opening, another show, and they throw it into the next song. They create a dance break for a song that normally doesn't have one, and that's Why Can't You Behave. This is sung by Lois. She's singing it to Bill because she has just learned that he is once again in debt with gambling, and she can't stand this. It really breaks her heart. Uh, On the original album, this song is really slow and sleepy. In subsequent productions, I think the style of the performance changed. And now I think if you're playing Lois, Why Can't You Behave is a lot more complex. It's not this sort of mournful admonition. It's not a finger-wagging song. There's a lot more that you can do with it, and I think you see that in various... If you hear it from album to album, it definitely changes. Won't you turn that new leaf over So your baby can be your slave There's a more sexualized energy because I think Lois has this tactic of sexuality that she tries to use on Bill. Uh, This idea that she loves him and wants to be with him, but she has to withhold something because he's not giving her anything. Wunderbar is a great song because uh, throughout Fred and Lily's bickering, they start to realize that they have this shared history that isn't entirely filled with pain and and regret and remorse. They think about an old piece that they used to do while they were on tour and they were newly married and they were very poor. And the song that they used to sing was called Wunderbar. Oh, there was a waltz in it, remember? Something about a bar. Yeah, madame, you are ravishing tonight. You have made me the happiest of men. Oh, your highness. Wunderbar! 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 There's our favorite star above. What a bright, shining star. Like the It's really fun to watch in any staging, especially if the chemistry is really good. They've treated each other very poorly, but it is nice to sort of see them push all of that aside and sort of revel in this idea that we were happy, and that's not necessarily something that should be thrown away or sort of glossed over with anger. It it can be if we allow it, if we treat each other well enough in the present day, that can stand as a pure memory, and it's very nice. And it's also just fun because they're recreating their characters from that old piece that they used to do, and it's just really fun. When, when Lily is handed the bouquet of flowers... Oh, did I mention that Lily has her own assistant, Hattie? The two assistant characters are crazy. I didn't really go into this at all. Uh, there are two assistants. Hattie is the assistant to Lily, and Paul is the assistant to Fred. Hattie is not a character you want to play. Hattie does get to sing the majority of another opening, another show. But then beyond that, Hattie doesn't do anything, from what I can tell. 
Paul, at least, gets to do the the second act opener, Too Darn Hot, which I'll go into more in a bit. He gets to lead this enormous dance segment, and it's it's fantastic if you have the skills. I, I honestly feel bad for the person who plays Hattie, because it's just, it's not a great role. When Lily, when, when she thinks about Fred and she looks at these flowers, she thinks, you know, maybe there's more here than I thought. And she starts to swoon. The song So In Love, it expresses an unhealthiness that is concerning. <laughs> I mean, it's definitely not a healthy sort of swoon that she's experiencing, but it's very compelling. I mean, I don't have the exact lyrics here in front of me, but at one point she says... God damn it, like I still, that's what's so frustrating. He does things like this, he gives me these flowers, and I have to reorient myself. I have to completely rethink how I view this man. It's much more complex than you would think. Now let's compare that song to a song from another musical entirely. Now we're going to go to Sondheim. I, I love the song Losing My Mind from Stephen Sondheim's show, Follies. Losing My Mind is very much in keeping with this same sense of raw love mixed with very caustic sort of brittle regret. And when those two things mix together and become a sludge, you do start to question yourself. You do start to wonder, what's wrong with me? Is this right that I feel this way? I like the idea of a song like So In Love being sung by a character like Lily And then later on in her life, she might sing a song like Losing My Mind. This might be a stretch for some people who are really familiar with both works, but I love, I love kind of taking those two, even if they are a little incompatible, I love sort of smashing those toy blocks together. It's really fun. Uh, We open at Venice is the beginning of the Taming of the Shrew production proper, and that's when we get really Inception-level nuts. Because what you have to understand is Kiss Me Kate is a show about actors putting on a show. That show being The Taming of the Shrew. But when The Taming of the Shrew begins, Fred, Lily, Lois, and Bill come on stage in their Shakespearean garb, and they say to the audience, we are playing a troupe of roaming players of, you know, Shakespeare's day. A troupe of strolling players will be. Kiss Me Kate is a show about actors playing actors putting on a show. And I really do appreciate that. They don't really do a ton with that outside of We Open in Venice, uh, but it is really fun. Uh, With time, as the show evolved and the way that people now choose to perform We Open in Venice, it's also funny because it keeps that theme going of acting is just sort of a grind. They kind of talk about all of the different cities that they visit and how it's just this constant circuit that never changes. And they see the same people and they, they visit the same bars. And with each verse, they just get more 
more and more despondent, and the, the music slows down to a halt. Very funny. Uh, Tom Dicker Harry is Lois's big song uh, within The Taming of the Shrew, and I think this is my favorite song. I want to play a clip here of... I'm going to play a clip that leads into my favorite moment. I, I, I only include this this little chunk at the beginning because it's so disgusting. I come to the author of Brett Patrician Still spraying my decaying family tree To give a social goose to thy position Marry me, marry me, marry me That's disgusting, Cole Porter. I don't want to hear the phrase spraying my decaying family tree. Oh, you horny, you horny little man. Cole Porter, I say to you from <laughs> from the land of the living, you're a dirty old bird and I love you. I love that progression of marry me, marry me, marry me, marry me. It it's not like the most complex or you know sophisticated bit of songwriting but it's it's so sweet to the ear and I really hang my hat on that every single time I you know listened to one of the albums or watched a staging or the film I found myself getting excited thinking oh the marry me chunk is coming up it, it's I don't know I just it makes me all warm inside it really does delight me I from this song I also love a dick a dick a dick a dick. I love when they just do that. I love the idea that Cole Porter, in choosing the names Tom, Harry, and Dick, very often pairs Harry right alongside Dick. Harry Dick. Cole Porter, you dirty old bird. If your ghost is roaming this land of the living, I hope it's getting laid constantly with other ghosts. I'm not going to go too much into Fred's songs uh, as Petruchio. I've come to why the wealthily in Padua is not really all that funny or charming except when it is performed on the 99 revival by Brian Stokes Mitchell. So I, he gives it, I wrote down, <laughs> it's a crackling with silver bass daddy energy. Yes, so go go to the 99 version if you want to hear Brian Stokes Mitchell doing doing that as well as it can possibly be done. I Hate Men is Lily's big number. She is, of course, playing the shrew in The Taming of the Shrew, and that's just a delight. If, if, if you can't get people laughing with I Hate Men, then there's a big problem there. Too Darn Hot, which I said before is uh, featured on the 2000 Tony segment, I like numbers like Too Darn Hot. I call them uh, party numbers or why the fuck not numbers. Uh, they are not needed. They do not advance the story. They're very much in keeping with that older style of Broadway that I was trying Trying to describe earlier. Uh, a couple of examples from other shows that I could think of include Steam Heat from The Pajama Game and Who's Got the Pain from Damn Yankees. I think, for the most part, when you see shows with songs like this, they always put them at the top of the second act, just as a way to uh, get everyone back in their seats and orient them with something they don't necessarily need to pay too much attention to at first, but by the end, hopefully, it's enough of a showstopper, it's enough of a big number that everyone's going to just be fully committed for the next you know, hour of the show as they go into the rest of the evening. Um, the original album jumps right into it. <laughs> It's too darn hot. I'd like to sup with my baby tonight and play the pup with my baby tonight. I'd like to sup with my baby tonight, play the pup with my baby tonight, but I ain't up to my baby tonight because it's too darn hot. The revival makes a much bigger spectacle of the number. Uh, the revival starts off super slow and really embraces the idea that too darn hot is the horniest number in the entire production. It's too darn hot. It's too darn hot. I'd like to sup with my baby tonight 
And play the pub with my baby tonight I'd like to sup with my baby tonight And play the pub with my baby tonight But I ain't up to my baby tonight Cause it's too darn hot it's just, it's that edging quality. It, it really does, it, it, especially in, I think, the PBS filming that I saw in Chunks. Uh, that was the first time I saw it, and it's hilarious because the dancers keep getting whipped up into this frenzy, this boiling point, and then Paul, that assistant character who's leading them, sort of, like, lets them go, and sort of, they, they, they get exhausted, and they think to themselves, oh, I can't do it anymore. I can't possibly keep dancing. It's been seven minutes. And then Paul pulls them back in and he goes, no, 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 we're not done yet, baby. We're going to get even crazier and even more kinetic. And we're just going (laughs) to, it's all about coming. Too Darn Hot is just all about coming. And it's hilarious. The theme of the piece is, it's too hot to fuck. (laughs) It's just too hot to fuck. And when the temperature goes way up, it's impossible to fuck your lady. I want to fill her cup. And normally when it's nice and cool, I'm all about it. But sweaty stinky? I don't like sweaty stinky sex. No, thank you. It's hilarious. This this only truly works if you can see it on stage and take in the incredibly intense choreography. It is, this is the ensemble, more than in any other instance, getting the chance to explode like fireworks. That's fantastic. Always true to you in my fashion. This is Lois's big second act number. And it, I think it actually is, I said Tom Dicker, Harry, uh, that includes one of my favorite moments, but as a song from beginning to end, I think you got to go with Always True to You in My Fashion. Uh, This is a really great showcase for Lois because she is straight up saying to Bill, look, I know you're upset that I flirt with a lot of men and that there are a lot of men from my past, but... That's just how I am. That's how I roll. I love to have fun. And I will be true to you in my way. I will never, you know, truly betray you in the way that you're accusing me of. I'm just having fun. I'm sexually fucking activated. And I know who the hell I am. So shut up already. It's it's just really funny. It's a great example of uh, what I'm kind of coining as the variance song. Each verse is the same structure. It's It's the exact same melody. It's employing the same rhyme scheme from verse to verse. Except that Cole Porter is just having fun thinking how many different ways he can rewrite the same melody with new words. It's really great. I enjoy a tender pass by the Boston, Boston Mass, though his past is middle class and not back then. But I'm always true to you, darling, in my fashion. Yes, I'm always true to you, darling, in my way. So you're getting a lot of that. Like, each verse is going to sound exactly like that, but the words are going to be different. And they just go on and on and on. I love the idea that Cole Porter could probably write a hundred more of these in his sleep. It also employs the encore reprise, where the character, after doing this big number, leaves the stage, the audience applauds, thinking that the song is over, and then she returns. She comes back on stage because she knows how much you're loving it. And I should also say, this is not within the context of the Taming of the Shrew. So Lois is not really in front of the audience that is watching The Taming of the Shrew. She's in front of us. We're really sort of folding back the the meta nature of the material and what is real and what is not, what is meant to be performative and what is meant to be diegetic and organic and real. I I just like that idea of, oh, you loved that? Well, how about five more verses? (laughs) I think in the London revival that I watched, she does it twice. I think she leaves two times and comes back for the big final verse. And over time, this is gone from like a small kooky character number to a really good showcase for a belter and by because by the end of it as it is performed now it's just this enormous explosion of sound at the end and it's a real crowd pleaser
easily my favorite song. Uh, there is a reprise of So In Love that Fred sings. I only mention it because this is the one moment where Fred is shown to have a heart. Lily does leave. Uh, she leaves with Harrison Howell, her fiancé, and we are supposed to think to ourselves, oh, this is sad for Fred. He has asked her to stay with him, and she has said no, and now he is heartbroken. Oh, this is sad for... I don't care. Like, that's the problem. Like, Fred's a piece of shit. He has treated her very badly and threatened her with very real violence, laughed in the face of her desperation and her humiliation, and she has every right to leave. I love the fact that in this moment when he sings so in love, we're supposed to think, oh, we're so, we want them to get together. I, I don't buy it for a fucking second. Uh, Brush Up Your Shakespeare is a very famous song from this uh, show. Uh, it's sung by the two gangsters, and it, it pushes that idea of the encore reprise a little bit too far. The characters leave, they come back, they sing more verses. They leave, they come back, they sing even more verses. Look, the gangsters are fun. You would be lucky to play one of those two characters but you really have to work to make Brush Up Your Shakespeare great from beginning to end. Because if you're going to keep coming back on stage, it doesn't have the punch, the belt punch of always true to you in my fashion. This is more like, this is very much in the vaudeville type of material. They try to explain why this is even being performed by having the gangsters out of costume. You know, their boss has died and they, they're trying to make their way out of the theater and they find themselves walking on stage in front of the Taming of the Shrew audience. And in desperation, they sing Brush Up Your Shakespeare in a panic as a way to entertain and throw off the audience. It does not make any sense at all. The movie actually does a much better job of giving context to the song. The gangsters see that Fred is depressed you know, Fred has just said goodbye to Lily, presumably for the last time, and they sing Brush Up Your Shakespeare to Fred as a bit of advice, because the whole thing about Brush Up Your Shakespeare is, uh, if you want to get a girl to fall in love with you, you just need to quote Shakespeare, and that all of the verses are just giving examples from the Shakespeare canon. It's much funnier in the movie. I like the idea that these gangsters over time have found a soft spot for Fred. True, all three of them have participated in the humiliation of a woman that they don't really care about, but if you sort of divorce everything else from that, it can be fun. Uh, so brush up your Shakespeare, and then there is a Kiss Me Kate finale where Lily just shows up. She There's a, there's a moment where Fred walks on as Petruchio, and everyone in the ensemble, they have this reaction of, what is even happening? Because Lily's not here. Why is the show continuing? Why are we pretending as if this show can end? Fred is in a coma, essentially, on stage because he's so depressed. This man didn't get what he wanted for once in his life. But, hmm, does he not? Because there she is. There's Lily. Fred is so delighted by this appearance by Lily that he just says, Ah, there's a wench. Now kiss me, Kate. And everyone sings, Well, kiss me, Kate. And that's it. That's how quickly the show ends. We never really understand why Lily comes back. There's this crazy exchange right before she leaves where Fred says to her, Don't leave. And Lily says, You left me, idiot. Like, remember? And Fred goes, but I came back. And I don't even understand what that's supposed to mean. Fred, Fred acts like he... I think we're supposed to see Fred is in the right. Like, he is truly this guy trying to tame a shrew. This woman who is just too independent, she's too temperamental. That's her problem. It's not my problem. Uh, there's this crazy moment where Fred tries to make it clear to Lily that if she marries Harrison Howell, she's going to lead a boring life. And that the only life that she could ever truly cherish is one in the theater. And I, I don't think that's what convinces her to come back. It's her love for Fred. I feel bad for Lily. I just do. I feel bad at the end of the show because I, I just think to myself, Lily needs to be doing her own fucking thing. She doesn't need to be married to Harrison Howell. And she certainly doesn't need to get back with fucking Fred. That's fucking dumb. I'm going to take a quick break for an ad, a little, a little word from our sponsor, 5678 Coffee. Isn't that right, Patty? Fantastic. Take it away. Hello. <laughs> oh, I didn't see you there because I was murdering someone with my own hand. Hello, this is Sweeney from the Sweeney Todd, the Demon Barber of Fleet Street. Oh, 
you know, it takes a lot of energy to do my job, that being killing all of my enemies with two razors. I love you so much, my little razors. I couldn't be with them and they couldn't be with me if I was laid out on the floor, sleepy like some sort of bear. No, 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 I need the energy to pick up my two friends and kill with abandon. And that is why I drink five, six, seven, eight coffee. It gives me the vim and verve to take down anyone who would disrespect my daughter or my wife, who may or may not be that homeless woman I see on the corner screaming about her vagina all the time. Who can say? (laughs) I say to you that you should pick up a cup of coffee today. And if you're trying to get in league with the pretty women sipping coffee, sitting in their chairs... Why don't you offer them a cup of five, six, seven, eight coffee? Tell them, knock the cup of coffee out of their hand. Knock it out of their hand. Say, that coffee's shit. Here, here's a cup of five, six, seven, eight coffee. And if they say, well, I was already drinking five, six, seven, eight coffee, you can say, shush, have this fresh cup. And that is how you will fall in love. Mm, You know, London is shit. Everything is shit. The only thing that isn't shit, and you could take this to the bank, is five, six, seven, eight coffee, and you can count on it. Goodbye. I have people to kill. Bum 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 Final thoughts on Kiss Me Kate. It's a gem of a show. Would I see it live? Of course! Yes, direct me to the nearest college and or regional theater. If you can afford it, please buy me tickets to that 2019 revival that's being planned for Broadway. The big question is, did it deserve to win Best Musical over all of the other nominees? So, oddly, the other nominees for Best Musical weren't announced during that first ceremony in 1949. In fact, Tony nominees in general were not made public until the 1956 ceremony. All that said, I've taken a peek into what would have likely been considered for Best Musical that year, and the show titles are as follows. This is a good example of what I was talking about. A lot of these shows are reviews, and they're they're sort of sketch-based in nature. They're not trying to be a book musical like Kiss Me Kate. And for that reason, ultimately, I do think that Obviously, Kiss Me Kate should have won over all of these other shows. But just to give you a little bit of insight as to what these were, there was a show called As the Girls Go. Uh, It was about the first female president and how she has to rein in her horny husband. Uh, There was a show called Inside USA. Uh, This was a review where each sketch took place in a different state. Uh, I read that there is a mermaid that shows up at one point. Doesn't seem exactly, it seems fun, but again, not exactly uh, substantial material that needs to be, this isn't gonna go into the Library of Congress, you know what I mean? Uh, There was a show called Lend an Ear. This is another review about psychoanalysis, gossip columnists, and other wacky topics. Apparently it was just all over the map. And the cast featured a young Carol Channing playing a variety of characters. And the other show from that year uh, would have been Love Life. I saved this for last because it's truly bonkers. This is about a married couple who never age. uh, And they face the changing, you know, moralities and standards from 1791. The show starts in 1791 and goes all the way through 1948, the year that the show would have premiered. Uh, It was written by Kurt Weill and Alan J. Lerner. And it is considered to be an early concept musical, uh, sort of going with this more abstract artistic sensibility, that actually does sound interesting. I know I said that all of these uh, potential nominees were not nearly as good as Kiss Me Kate, but I'd be interested to see this weird borderline science fiction story, Love Life. It just, it sounds very compelling to me and odd. Uh, Now's the time where I rank the show. Of course, this is the first show we've ever discussed here on The Musical Man. And therefore, I'm going to give it the number one slot on the spreadsheet. That's right, the spreadsheet that is available through Twitter. If you go to our Twitter profile, Musical Man Pod, there is a pinned tweet that includes a link to this uh, Excel, this Google sheet. It's not Excel. Oh, God, can you imagine? Oh, the brand confusion on everyone's part just now. Oh, not Excel, Google. In one tab, we have the chronological order of every show that has either won or been nominated for the Tony Award for Best Musical. And then in the second tab, you'll be able to keep track of how the shows are ranked. So when you go and look now, Kiss Me Kate will be sitting snugly in the number one slot all by itself. And with time, that will change. I don't know what's going to beat it out. Who knows? Who 
can say. Uh, Last week, when I spoke to you in the Overture episode, I mentioned that there were 251 shows on that chronological list. That's not true. And that's because I thought it was because I was pairing Fiorello and The Sound of Music in one cell on that spreadsheet. And I was doing that because it's the rare instance of two shows tying and winning the award for Best Musical. So in 1960, they both took home that award. And so I split those up. They each have their own cell now. The the list is 252 cells long. (laughs) And thank God that we were able to. uh, My A-type brain would not allow me to uh, avoid that topic. I'm glad that we have that noted. Um, Show-related ephemera. Fantastic. Now, unfortunately, uh, I wasn't able to find this on YouTube. I can't provide an easy link to this, but Too Darn Hot was used for an Adidas ad. Uh, you can't find this online. Oddly, it's like I said, it's not through YouTube. It's through this weird website that's a, it's a catalog of just old commercials. It's for this type of shoe technology that they advertise via text. It says, ventilated Clima cool technology. Adidas thought to themselves, how how do we advertise this ventilated clima cool technology? Well, let's get that old song too darn hot and overlay it with sweaty athletes. Athletes who are just perspiring from every pore and crack in their bodies. Are their asses sweaty? Fantastic. Roll that beautiful bean footage. To determine which show we discuss next, we'll need to take a ride on the musical carousel, otherwise known as the random number generator I named after that classic Rodgers and Hammerstein show. I'm 4,700 years young and feeling just fine. Everyone ready to take a ride on the musical carousel? Then let's go! Ladies and gentlemen, we have now stepped off of the musical carousel, and I have determined via my random number generator what show will be next. That show will be the 1985 winner of the Tony Award for Best Musical, Big River, The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. Oh, brother. Ay, ay, ay. (laughs) <laughs> oh, this, we're going to the year of my birth, ladies and gentlemen. Everyone in between and outside of that binary spectrum. I'm excited. It's, I'm going to tell you right now, not one of my favorites. <laughs> not to spoil anything. Uh, but yes, I am excited. I, I, I was really interested to find out what that second show is going to be. I am very grateful to have Kiss Me Kate out of my skull. I, I had so many thoughts. I, I hope that you enjoyed this second episode. I'm really grateful that you are listening. At this point, hopefully we are in the iTunes store. It has been submitted for review, uh, so I hope that you'll be able to find it in the iTunes store by the time this comes out on Wednesday. If it is available, if you can find it, please subscribe, find us in the store, give us a five-star rating, and leave a five-star review along with that rating. We are available through Podbean. That's musicalmanpod.podbean.com. We're on Twitter, at musicalmanpod. Like and retweet us. You can email me at musicalmanpod at gmail.com. I want you to email me. I want you to tell me what you think about Kiss Me Kate, especially if you've been in a production of Kiss Me Kate. I want to hear all about it. You better tell me, baby. You better tell me all about it. Was it weird? Was there a weird person in the cast. There's usually a weird person in the cast. I want to hear about them. And I want to thank Alex Green for creating the fantastic logo art that you see on your device right now. I want to thank Zach Little for all of the music that you've been hearing throughout this uh, episode. You're going to hear some more in just a minute. You know what that sound means? Yes. Just when the fun is starting comes the time for parting. Oh well. We'll catch up some other time, specifically on the next episode of The Musical Man. So long, farewell, auf Wiedersehen, and good night. <laughs>